0: This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for March 16th, 2018. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. I put
1: far more importance on opening up those lines of communication and normalizing them than I do on agreeing on a particular bill or not, because that will come. You never know what the crisis is going to be. You never know what the issue is. But if you don't have the capacity for working collaboratively and trusting the, the other people that you're working with then you're going to fail when that crisis arises, and that's what we can't afford.
0: Our guest is John Lawrence. He's a veteran congressional staffer serving for 38 years, including chief of staff to the Democratic leader and former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. John Lawrence is out with a new book, The Class of 1974, which looks at the so-called Watergate babies. That group of representatives elected after President Richard Nixon's resignation. He also examines the roots of partisanship on Capitol Hill. One takeaway, both parties need to talk to each other, not at each other. John Lawrence, the book is called The Class of 74, Congress After Watergate and The Roots of Partisanship. We'll talk about the book in just a moment. But first, the news this week from Pennsylvania's 18th congressional district. Republicans now say that Connor Lamb winning the district because he ran as a Republican against your former boss, Leader Nancy Pelosi. What's your reaction to that?
1: I think that Connor Lamb probably won because he ran a, a campaign that was well-suited to that particular district. And I think that is the key in candidate recruitment across the country. That's what I think the Democrats uh, are going to be doing. They're going to be nominating a lot of people who uh, don't fit a stereotype, which is usually developed by our opponents, not by the Democrats themselves, that reflects the districts in which they they run and have some diverse points of view on on uh, on a variety of issues. The key is to get candidates that fit the district. Uh, Connor Lamb was a good example of where that was that was done.
0: Is Leader Pelosi though going to be an anchor around the necks of some Democrats as they seek to pick up seats in 2018?
1: In some districts, they're going to do what the the Republicans will try to do, what they did in Pennsylvania 18, and that is to make her a big issue. I think what we saw in, in Pennsylvania 18 is that local issues will outweigh those kinds of imported issues, whether it's trying to bind yourself to President Trump, as Republicans will sometimes try to do or try to make Mrs. Pelosi uh, into an issue. Uh, the the reason the Republicans do that is because she's effective. She keeps Democrats together. She recruits strong candidates. She develops good messages. She puts uh, Democrats on the key committees that help them in their constituencies and help them with their reelection. So naturally, they go after uh, her the way they went after Tip O'Neill or the way Democrats went out after Newt Gingrich. The bottom line is, I don't think that's a decisive issue in these in these races. What what wins and loses particularly around. House races is is, uh, two things. One is how well the candidate reflects the interests of the district. And number two is the overall general political environment. In this particular case, uh, how do Republicans react to a extremely unproductive Congress and a very unpopular president?
0: For those not old enough to remember, what was the class of 74?
1: This is a unique group of people that ran uh, for uh, Congress the year after, uh, actually the year that the Watergate uh, scandal ended. Uh, It ended uh, beginning in the year with House impeachment hearings uh, and then the resignation of the president and then the uh, uh, elevation of the former Republican leader of the House to the to the presidency and then the pardon of Richard Nixon. Wrapped in that as well was uh, a very serious recession, uh, a national energy crisis, uh, and uh, the still the remnants of, of the very divisive war in Vietnam. And there had been efforts prior to uh, '74 to bring the Congress into a more modern era, more democratic, more participatory, more transparent. And many of those efforts had fallen short. When the class of 74, this group of 76 new Democrats, 92 overall, a pickup of 49 seats from the Republicans, a real wave election, when they arrived... Uh, suddenly the Democrats finally had the uh, core group that they needed to effectuate these reforms. And they made changes in Congress, which have affected the Congress ever since, uh, right up until this day.
0: A number of years ago, in an interview with Gerald Ford, one of the things that he talked about in terms of Democrats and Republicans working together during his 25 years in the House of Representatives is that they were bound together by World War II, either having lived through the war or having served in the military. And yet, as we look at the class of 74 and subsequent classes, it was the Vietnam War that really shaped that generation. Can you talk about that?
1: When I was interviewing, and I interviewed over 40 members of the class, uh, when I interviewed them and I asked, uh, what was the motivating reason for you running for Congress? Because most people think, because of the what they know of the Watergate class, which isn't very much, that it was a desire to reform the Congress. Most of them didn't know anything about the internal dynamics of the Congress and did not run with that as intent. What I found overwhelmingly was they said they ran to end the war in Vietnam. Uh, That had been the formative experience of their lives. That and I think to some extent, as Tip O'Neill wrote, the assassinations of President Kennedy, Senator Kennedy, Martin Luther King. They came to Congress with a sense that the Congress was not responsive to the public, that the Congress was... Uh, overly tradition bound and was not listening to constituents. Many of them came winning races that they had not anticipated they would win, and so they really uh, put a huge premium on acting and acting swiftly. They were com- very intolerant of the pro- the notion that the Congress is going to take a long time. Uh, to consider issues or deal with issues. They were disabused of how the Congress was going to respond to that relatively quickly, and that's one of the lessons of the book. But they were highly motivated, and, and that included some Republicans. One of the members of the class of 74 was Larry Pressler uh, from uh, South Dakota, uh, and he, uh, he ran for Congress because he also, he had been working in the State Department, was very, very concerned about uh, the financial, the moral... Uh, impacts of, of Vietnam. And he he arrived with, with his, just as strong a desire as many of the others of the Democrats to end that war and turn the country's attention more towards domestic concerns.
0: The subtitle, Why the Class of 74 The Roots of Partisanship, uh, explain that part of the book.
1: A lot of what happens in politics has uh, is, is the result of unintended consequences. And one of the themes that runs through this book is that by opening the Congress to broader participation, to younger people being able to serve in higher levels on subcommittees as subcommittee chairman, greater ability to uh, offer amendments and help shape legislation, much greater transparency, bringing, for example, television coverage to committee function to committee activities, and, and to the floor, which C SPAN did, but was not the case uh, even when this class arrived. Many of those reforms, while they democratize the institution, while they diminish the power of some of the, uh, the entrenched uh, seniority empowered chairmen, uh, also gave opportunities for much more uh, divisive issues uh, to come into the political debate. Issues uh, having to do with race, having to do with busing, having to do with gun policy, having to do with, uh, in the Democratic side, nuclear-free. Issues that would have been uh, suppressed, if you will, in an era of tighter control. And the reforms, in effect, enabled these issues to arise, and uh, in conjunction with many other things that were developing, the revitalization of the Republican Party, the revitalization of the conservative movement uh, in the House, uh, and national politics in general, in a, in, inadvertently, I think some of those reforms enabled greater debates, and those debates were taking place in a more realigned ideologically realigned political environment where the parties were fighting with each other rather than working with each other.
0: You mentioned television, so I have to ask you, do you think television cameras since 1979 have helped or hurt how the House of Representatives operates?
1: So I don't want to sound like a politician where I say both, but I think the answer is both. Uh, at the time, uh, there were many people who opposed the idea of of television coverage. Uh, they warned uh, Tip O'Neill famously warned that the cameras would focus on people picking their noses, but even more, uh, even more random things. Just who are people sitting next to, and who are people talking to? Or are people going to be using the television coverage to speak to the public rather than to convince their uh, their colleagues in debate? Is it going to diminish the number of people on the floor where a very important fraternizing and socializing had uh, helped to break down the divisions between the parties and individuals? So there, all those warnings were there. And to some extent, as we see the way that special orders are used, the way in which uh, gotcha amendments are used in legislation or in the motions to recommit, there's a point, I suppose, that 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 uh, one can can point to, but on the other hand, would we be better if Congress was continuing to operate in the dark? If people, as was the case as late as the nineteen sixties, didn't know how their members were voting, uh, were not as attuned to the issues as they were played out on the floor? I don't think anybody can seriously argue that 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 would be a better environment. So I think this is one of those situations where. Reforms bring with them some liabilities, and they change the nature of the institution, but that's inevitable, and and ultimately that's desirable.
0: John Lawrence, you teach history and civics and government here in Washington at the University of California-Washington program, and we grew up understanding that there are three co-equal branches of government. Is Congress co-equal?
1: It's very hard for Congress to function as a co-equal branch of government, although it certainly has the desire to be co-equal and to, to reassert itself against what came to be known as the Imperial Presidency, has been one of the bipartisan efforts that's been made since the 1970s, both on the Democratic side and the Republican side, uh, not simply uh, acting, for example, on the president's budget, not simply acting on the president's legislative agenda, and conducting aggressive oversight of the executive branch, which is really one of the major reforms that comes out of 1974, is this idea that Congress is going to examine how programs are operating, how money is spent. I think that one of the real problems we see with the contemporary Congress is that so much of that uh, of that independent, co-equal, momentum has been slowed and shut down. I noticed in the last week, the Speaker Ryan saying, uh, "Well, we're not going to do anything on gun policy until we see what the administration says, or we're not going to do something on immigration until we see what the administration says." This phenomenal. Breakdown of oversight, where you have the intelligence committee, which was, has always been, and Mrs. Pelosi served in the intelligence committee, I think, longer than any other member of the House, certainly longer than Democrats, uh, has always operated on a bipartisan basis, and you now have the the majority coming out with a a very very premature conclusion that there was no collusion. Uh, so much so that other Republicans have come out and said, well, wait a minute, the evidence doesn't justify that, uh, and they've begun to walk back that conclusion. It's hard It's hard for me as somebody who has both written about the way in which Congress has tried to reassert itself, teaches that Congress is designed as a co-equal branch. Remember, the founders made it the, pri- the Article One of the Constitution, not the presidency, and to see Congress backsliding into this uh, very reactive and and unproductive phase uh that's very really disappointing to me and it's disappointing in particularly because the latter stages of my career uh where I was mrs. Pelosi's chief of staff, I saw Congress doing a great deal, including on a bipartisan basis during the economic crisis of two thousand and eight on a bipartisan basis with a Republican president. And the lesson that I, I derive from that and that I teach my class is that it's not that the institution is inherently weak or inherently incapable of asserting itself as a co-equal branch of government, but it very much has to do with the attitudes of people who are running the Congress. Are you prepared to do what you need to do to to demonstrate that the legislative branch uh, has an integral role to play in the governing of the country?
0: And part of that, of course, the politics behind all of this, more often than not, members on both sides of the aisle more concerned about a primary challenge than a general election challenge, in part because of the way these districts have been drawn and in part because of the polarization of the two parties. Can you explain
1: Yes. So so gerrymandering is certainly a part of the process, although I, I caution people not to, to focus exclusively on that. I think at least as much of a problem in this regard is, is the role of independent expenditures and money that pours into districts. We know that, uh, that uh, the most hardline people in both parties are the ones who tend to vote in primaries. In most places, people win nominations in primaries. In relatively few places are there runoffs, so you can win a primary with 15 or 18 percent of the people turning out in the primary, and you win a quarter of that vote, and suddenly you're the nominee. And the people who tend to prevail in those primaries do tend to be the people who are taking the hardest line. That's where the grassroots energy is, that's where the money is, uh, that's where the organizational endorsements are. And with that hanging over your shoulder on both sides, it certainly has an intimidating effect, not just in terms of your campaign, but in terms of your votes. But even in terms of the issues that you take up in committee or in subcommittee, what you choose to hold hearings on, what amendments you choose to offer. And I used to hear stories about people who would say, gee, I just don't want to vote on that. Let's not bring it up. And all that really does contribute to Congress losing its edge as a proactive uh, branch of government, starting to resemble uh, what Senator Joe Clark in the 1960s called the Sapless branch of government.
0: We spent a fair amount of time here on C-SPAN listening to the Lyndon Johnson tapes. And one of the things that you learned from 50 years ago is the fierce partisanship in the battles that President Johnson had on so many issues, whether it was civil rights or Medicare or other social programs. And my question, is it really any different today than it was 50 or 100 years ago?
1: Yeah, it really is, because you have gone through a an ideological realignment of the parties, where uh, in Lyndon Johnson's day, uh, there was a study that showed there's about 240 people in the House of Representatives, for example, who fell somewhere in the political middle. That is, they tended to vote, uh, and sometimes with the Democrats, sometimes with Republicans. If they were their critical component in terms of putting together uh, majorities uh, by the 1990s that had dropped down to less than a dozen. By today, it's zero. I mean the the middle has been severely hollowed out. So when you go to find bipartisan solutions, as Lyndon Johnson had to do, for example, on civil rights, uh, because he did not have the Democratic votes in the South, he had to find Republican votes, and Republic not only Republican uh, liberals, but leading Republican Republican Senate leaders like Everett Dirksen provided key votes. Um, That was the way you you legislated. These days, it's just very, very tough to cross that aisle and, and find people because the parties have segregated themselves ideologically. And there's, you know, what they used to say in Texas, there's nobody in the middle of the road but a yellow line and a dead armadillo. And to some extent, that's where we, I think we found ourselves politically. You're punished, not rewarded for being in the political middle.
0: Which goes back to your book. My question, why? Why is this happening today? who bears the responsibility, and how do you correct it? Uh,
1: well, <laughs> yes. I think one of the key points to keep in mind on that is that it didn't just happen recently. Uh, part of the, the message of this book is that the evolution of this highly partisan environment, uh, really, you have to go back into the, into the 70s. You have to go back to the revitalization of the Republican Party in the South, Uh, Which created a two party system, which created division um, and uh, which by virtue of the fact that Republicans began to win seats that they hadn't competed in, let alone won for almost a century, uh, ended what had been largely a Democratic domination of the Congress uh, for for 62 years. Uh, between nineteen thirty two and nineteen ninety four the Democratic Party was in control for fifty eight of the sixty two years Once you get into competition and Francis Lee of the University of Maryland has written a book called insecure Majorities' a terrific book that documents this once that issue of competition for control uh, becomes dominant uh, the the benefits and and the desirability of cooperating really diminishes. I think it's true on both sides, although a lot of political scientists who have looked at this say that there has been a disproportionate uh, impact on partisanship from Republicans, that Republicans have moved further to the right than Democrats have moved to the left. But I don't think finger pointing is going to be the way to 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 resolve this. I think both parties uh, are going to have to and, and voters are going to have to figure out a way. To reward people in the middle instead of victimizing people in the middle, and one of the ways to do that, and uh, I don't have a great answer, but there 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 are a variety of ways you might go about this, is to encourage people to participate more in the candidate selection process. As long as you allow uh, a third or a quarter of the people uh, in in the party to select your nominees, and and you allow those people to be a uh, to win those nominations with maybe a quarter of a quarter of the voters, you're going to see this rewarding of the more extreme points of view. So there are places like California where you're experimenting with the top two tier. There are places like uh, Louisiana and Georgia where you see runoff elections. And I think we've got to start looking seriously at that, uh, those kinds of reforms to reward people who are not just going to always appeal to the most hardline on both sides. The other thing we're going to have to do, which is really tough and I think is, is fundamentally a problem here, is is controlling the disproportionate influence of money in, in politics. And I don't think um, that that falls only on one side of the ledger. My students always write about – they write their papers and they condemn the increased corporate influence as a result of Citizens United. But there's also a lot of disproportionate labor influence. It cuts both ways. Uh, you just – you can't have a democracy – Uh, which is, I think, ideally what Americans want, where you have voters not voting and people twisting and distorting the process through disproportionate expenditure of money. Uh, There is no magic button to push. There is no candidate you're going to vote for who's going to change this. Ultimately, democracy is a participatory sport, and either people get engaged, uh, vote, run for office, which is very much what happened in 1974. A lot of these people who got elected I mean, one of them, Bob Edgar, said, I had to look up Democratic Party in the yellow pages to find out where the party headquarters was. I don't I didn't even know. People have got to get engaged in this process. If they wait around for somebody else to do it for them, it's going to get worse, not better.
0: The Class of 74 is the book. And I want to ask you about Connor Lamb, because if he votes the way he campaigned, is that a model for what you're talking about? That bipartisanship to cross party lines and vote district, not politics?
1: He's going to have to have the opportunity to do that. As a jun- junior member, of course, he's not going to be writing a lot of legislation or deciding the agenda of subcommittees. And so it's still the, the burden is going to fall on, uh, on more senior members to provide him that opportunity. I will say this. Uh, the studies are pretty conclusive that regardless of how people get to Congress these days, they tend to vote with their own party. So if they're a 52 percent winner or an 80 percent winner, the overwhelming proportion of the time, like in 89 to 92 percent, depending on the party, they're going to vote with the Democratic position or the Republican position. And in part, that's not because that's what they necessarily want to do. It's because as the bills are presented to them on the floor, uh, as the amendments are presented to them, the, to them on the floor, there's not as much opportunity for for finding the middle ground. So, uh, you know, I'm sure that on on certain issues, Congressman Lamb. If I'm not getting a little too far over the skis, there uh, is going to uh, is going to find ways to vote for the moderate position. The real question is, will we have that opportunity
0: very often? You had the chance to talk to how many members from the class of '74?
1: Somewhere around forty, maybe a, maybe a couple more. Is there
0: uh, one story that stands out in your mind as members look at Congress today and reflect on their own election in 1974?
1: I think that. Uh, they came to a realization, uh, that, and it was a very hard realization for them, uh, that the energy and the unity and the enthusiasm that they brought to the, the task of reforming the Congress was much harder to replicate when you began to deal with legislative issues. And so people had, uh, had, uh, been able to say whether you're a, a more moderate person or a more conservative person, uh, the the uh, the we have a shared objective in allowing greater participation by more members of the Congress. That was the reform. Once they got down and had to start voting on labor legislation, energy legislation, it became much more uh, divided. so, Partly there is there was a, an institutionalizing process, there was um, a maturing process, uh, and uh, a number of them, when they were talking to me, said, you know, we, we became part of the institution much quicker than I thought we were going to. And to some extent, I suppose that's, they could view that as a negative, but as somebody who spent you know, almost four decades on Capitol Hill, I would say that's actually a good development because politics is about finding collaboration and finding middle ground, not only to pass legislation, but to have legislation that endures uh, because uh, you all know that uh, it it doesn't last forever. I'd say if there's one story, uh, one jumps out at me, involves my old boss, George Miller, who was a member of this class. There was an effort uh, in 1975 or 1976 in the Democratic caucus to increase the number of members you needed to get a recorded vote because they had made it a very small number, only 20 people. And that meant that it was real easy for any for these more marginal groups in the House to force a vote which would prove embarrassing or politically vulnerable. And some of the older members, including some longtime reformers, said, okay, we got to raise that number because it's just allowing too much uh, political chaos and too much vulnerability. And Miller stood up in the caucus and he said, you know what? Now, remember, this is 1976. He stood up in the caucus and he said, you know what? Uh, we shouldn't do that because someday we might be in the minority and we're going to want the ability to offer amendments too. And uh, so this may work for us right now as the majority, but Democrats may not always be in the majority. Well, of course, it was another 18 years before we got there, but the wisdom of that observation, I think, was... was, was uh, Pretty important. And the other related was uh, Sam Stratton from New York, who was a very conservative Democrat, not a member of the class of 74, uh, also uh, expressed concerns about uh, the ability to maintain a Democratic majority if you didn't have a a big tent. And uh, interestingly, it was Philip Burton, uh, who was the caucus chairman uh, and uh, very, very significant in the reform efforts. Uh, who would lecture the members uh, saying, look, you got to be nice to the moderates and the conservatives in this caucus because if we don't have the moderates and conservatives, we don't have a Democratic majority. Pretty apocryphal words when you think of what happened uh, 20 years after this class came to
0: Washington. Let me conclude with this question because, as you pointed out, you spent 40 years from a junior staffer to chief of staff to Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. If the Democrats regain control of the House this year, we would have divided government. What advice would you give the Democratic leadership?
1: You know, I again, I I had the experience in 2005 and 2006 of working with the uh, with the, the Bush administration, and uh, lest anybody be under any misimpression, that was not a a, a cozy working relationship mrs pelosi had very very strong objections to the, obviously to the war in iraq uh, she was warning about uh, the uh, failure to conduct adequate oversight of financial services institutions as the what became the, the the banking and financial services industry crisis and housing crisis grew but what we were very diligent about doing and i certainly would expect would be the case as well should democrats win is to keep the lines of communication open. I met every week with George Bush's chief legislative uh, 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 representatives to the, the House, either Candy Wolf or Dan Meyer. Dan Meyer used to be chief of staff to Newt Gingrich. But we we forged a really close working relationship uh as I did later uh, with John Boehner, who I had worked with for years uh, when he was the chairman of the education committee and I was staff director there. You don't need to necessarily get along with people uh, ideologically uh, f- to have a common uh, goal in terms of the operations of government. I think that's where we've had some real f- falling down uh, and ironically falling down where you have the same party controlling both the Congress And 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 the House uh, and and the Senate as well. I put far more importance on opening up those lines of communication and normalizing them than I do on agreeing on a particular bill or not, because that will come. You never know what the crisis is going to be. You never know what the issue is. But if you don't have the capacity for working collaboratively and trusting the the other people that you're working with, then you're going to fail when that crisis arises. And that's what we can't afford.
0: The Class of 74, Congress after Watergate and the Roots of Partisanship, John Lawrence. Thanks for stopping by the C-SPAN studios. Thank you, Steve, so much. You've been listening to C-SPAN's The Weekly. Be sure to follow C-SPAN Radio on Twitter to learn about upcoming episodes. And by the way, every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app, as well as Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. If you like the program, please rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening.